Good morning, guys. If you've got a Bible, go ahead. We're going to start out. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12 this morning. If you do not have one, we should have some folks walking around that can get you guys one. But we're going to, we're going to bounce around a little bit in uh, Mark chapter 12, 13, and 14 this morning. And so uh, in preparation for teaching this, it, it began to, to, to remind me of our jobs. And, and if you've ever played on a sports team, uh, so often the, the work that you do, the job, the, the company that you work for, uh, if you play sports, the team that you play for, even if you are a sports fan, that can determine in so much of the way that we live our lives, right? Depending on your job, it can determine what time you wake up in the morning. It can determine uh, what you actually wear. I thought back to times when I was playing ball for so many years, and when I was with uh, Kansas City, they determined what I wore to the ballpark, what I wore when I went out to eat. They determined what my uniform looked like and even uh, what my facial hair was able uh, to look like. And in those times, it gave birth to uh, the handlebar mustache, which my wife, when we got engaged, said that has got to be the first thing that changes before we step into marriage together. Um, there's still some unfortunate Google images that will prove that to be true. But, but, but nonetheless, then when I stepped into the workforce again, what, what, what we wear, what we do, uh, and our jobs and life and our allegiance so often has an effect on our life. And so this morning, we want to look at uh, the first passage is going to be in Mark chapter 12. And I want to pray one more time just over this passage, uh, and then we'll jump in. So, Father, we are so thankful that we get to open up your word. We're so thankful that there are truths in here for each of us this morning. God, I pray that as we, uh, as we just pull things out of the text, that it would resonate with us. Lord, I yield to what you want to say and what you want to say only. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you'll open up to Mark chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 13. It says, Later they, being the religious leaders, sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and they said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you've paid no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription is on the coin? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give back to God's, uh, give back to God what is God. The question we want to pose this morning and what we want to answer throughout these, these texts is whose image is on you? We see Jesus, he, he has the Herodians and the Pharisees that they approach him. And now, in that time, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they were not friends. Right? The Pharisees, they were the religious leaders. They were uh, the ones who lived by the law. They, uh, in essence, had a bit of an oppressive feeling on the people because they thought rules and religion was what honored God. And then we got the Herodians. They were more of your political party. And so even way back when, the religious and the political seemed to, to not mesh well. But in this instance, we see the Pharisees and the Herodians, they come together and they say, hey, we have opposing, uh, we have very opposing interests, but if we come together, we might be able to pin our desires of differences against Jesus to trap him in stumbling on his words and, and saying something that could cause one of us to have reason for, uh, for attack on Jesus. And so they ask the question, should we pay the tax to Caesar? 
in that time, the, the Jewish people, the, the Roman culture had many taxes that they placed over the people. And so uh, the Roman Empire would have these tax collectors scattered all throughout the, the region. And, and a lot of the tax collectors, they would collect a sum and they would even uh, demand a little bit more than was asked of Rome to pad their own pockets. And so the Pharisees, being God's uh, followers and the religious people, they hated the tax. They thought it was oppressive to God's people. They thought it was wrong. The Herodians on the other side were loyal to Rome. So the question posed for them was, if you say that the tax shouldn't be paid, then you are seen as rebellious to Rome, and then we have a grounds for removal in a sense. And so knowing that both parties had differing interests in the question, Jesus said, why don't you bring me a denarius? Bring me a coin. And much like the coins that we have from our banks and pennies and dimes and quarters, there is an inscription on it. Right? There, there is a stamp of a president uh, from the past, and there is an inscription of in God we trust or for the United States or something that has the emblem of the U.S. on it, which proves that it is America's currency. And so the, the leaders, they bring a denarius to Jesus, and Jesus looks at it, and he says, whose inscription is this on the coin? And they say, well, it's Caesar's. And so Jesus looks, and he says, well, if Caesar's impression is on the coin, then this coin was created by Caesar. It was to be used by Caesar. The purpose of the coin was for Caesar. And so give back to Caesar that which is his. But then in the same sentence, Jesus looks at him, and he says, but... Give back to God what is his. And so we see that he says there is an impression, there is an inscription, there is a stamp on this coin, and Caesar's demanding it back. He said, it's mine anyways. I've given you a portion of it. I want some back. And God says, well, give it to him. Then it's his to begin with. But he says, but give back to God what is also God's. And so then we ask the question this morning, well, then what is created by God? What has God's stamp on it? What was created by God and for God and to be used for his purpose? And we see in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, one of the very first words of God was that he created man in the likeness of himself. He created man in the image of God, in the likeness of the Trinity, to have the characteristics of God in us. And so we see that just by the breath of God being breathed into clay, as we just sung, that was molded together. Uh-oh. As we see that, that God breathed into the clay as it was formed, that we are then created in the image of God. Paul will further write in Ephesians. He says that not only were you created in the image of God, but when you believed in Jesus, when you surrendered to Jesus as Lord, you were actually stamped and impressed with a seal that is the Holy Spirit. And so we see all throughout Scripture that we were, one, created in the image of God, but two, once we become followers of Jesus, that God actually puts a seal on our lives, much like a king or an emperor would have put a seal on a stamp or a letter to prove that that was his mark on whatever was going forth. It says that I have put my seal on you, that is the Holy Spirit. God says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give back to God what is God's. And so if we recognize that we are created in the image of God, we have God's impression on us. From creation, we were created for to be used by God. Then what is our response to these things? 
And as we've talked a lot over the last uh, quite a few weeks in the Gospels, and as I've uh, been able to teach a few times, the first place as recognizing that we are stamped in the image of God is that it must lead us to a place of repentance. That before we really say yes to Jesus, before we recognize that we were created in God's image in the garden, and in the garden there was perfect unity and intimacy with God and man. God created us in his likeness. He gave us his characteristics. He gave us his attributes, and he gave us the freedom to choose. But yet, being created like God wasn't good enough for man. Rather, we wanted to be God, and so with the ability of choice, man chose to rebel against God. And in doing so, man fractured that relationship that God intended to be intimate and and unified, and, and sin was brought into the world. And because of man, then there was sacrifices that were to be given on man's behalf, that the blood of the animal that was sacrificed would absorb the sin of man and would cleanse man of their unrighteousness and of their iniquities, and God would forgive them. And so because we see that from the very beginning in the garden, God knew that only through bringing himself as a sacrifice for man could we really be reunited and unified back with God. And so God, being fully man and fully human, came to this earth in the form of Jesus and in the person of Jesus. And Jesus says, I want so bad my children who were created like me and for me and to be used by me. I want that intimacy and that oneness back. And the only way that's going to happen is if I die, if I bleed, if I am sacrificed for them. And so Jesus went through turmoil that we will never understand. And he bled, and because of his blood, and because he was man and yet God, his blood, once and for all, was the cleansing power that heals us of our sin forever. And in doing so, when we recognize and we believe that that truth is real, when we believe that not only did he die for us and his blood was shed, but he actually rose from the grave, proving that he was in fact God. When we place our faith in the fact that we believe that to be true, when we say, Jesus, I believe in who you are and what you did. And then we repent of the life that we live before knowing Jesus, meaning we turn a different direction. For many of us, whether you uh, came to know the Lord at an early age or late in life, there was a period of life, I'm sure for most of us, that was walking in a direction away from Jesus. Right? We were satisfying the flesh. We were seeking to gratify that which is our desire, thinking that we were on the throne. And the invitation of Jesus is, I have given everything for you, and I am calling you to repent, to turn away from the flesh, to turn away from your desires, and to come back to me, because I have made a way for, as it was in Eden, to be done here on earth in unity and intimacy with the Father. And in doing that, Jesus says, then, or Paul will write in Ephesians, once we repent, once we believe, then and only then can we fully and truly live into the kingdom of God. Then and only then can we truly live into God, who who God's created us to be. And then we are stamped with this seal. We have the king's approval on us to then be sent out and to be used for his purpose. The Holy Spirit seals our life, and then we are commissioned out as God's people. The first place in the response of we being created in the image is to repent. Once we have repented, once we have chosen 
to follow Jesus, we now look at a couple passages to say, as children of God, living with the mark of God, the stamp of God on us, now how do we respond? What do we do now as disciples? What do we do now as followers of Jesus? If you'll bounce over now to, to chapter 12, verse 28. We read that one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So again, we see that the religious leaders, they, they're stirring. They're debating with Jesus. They're trying to pin him and not knowing what to say or pin him and not knowing the law. And so one of the religious leaders comes and he says, out of the 613 laws that are in the Mosaic law, of the 613 rules and laws that we say are of all the most importance, which one, Jesus, do you say has the most significant? And Jesus, like he very often will do, he doesn't answer them the way that they wanted to be answered. Rather, he addresses the posture of their heart. And he says, out of the 613 commandments, I'm going to sum them up into just two. That if you choose to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and then you choose to look upon your neighbor, to look upon other people as valuable, if not more valuable than yourself, Matthew will say that all the law, all the prophets, everything that was leading up to Jesus is actually summarized in these two commandments, to love me and to love people. We see that Jesus, he doesn't address the issue. Rather, he addresses the posture of the heart. And he stakes the claim that by loving me and by being most concerned with what I am most concerned of, the byproduct of your life will be honoring the law. It will be honoring my commandments. It will be the byproduct of your life. Why? Because if I am consumed in the depths of who I am, recognizing that I am created by God and to be used by God and that He loves me and that He is for me, then the action that should come out is one that loves the Lord. And in doing so, I will worship Him. I will want to serve Him. I will see people that are also created in the image of our Creator and say, man, I, got, I love you. I want, to be, uh, I want to be kingdom on earth for you. And in doing so, the law that says don't slander, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't rob me, keep the Sabbath holy, right? Like spend time in worship with me, that the do's and the don'ts that the Pharisees wanted to use to oppress the people, God actually says that should be a byproduct naturally of your life as you live in freedom with me. Right? He says, love me, be most concerned with the things of God, and in doing so, you will inhabit the commandments of the law. If you are most concerned with me, then you will be least concerned with satisfying your flesh. And when we try to satisfy the flesh, that is when we get into some dangerous grounds. And so instead of addressing 613 of the commandments, he addresses them all by saying, Love me. Be most concerned with me. 
And our prayers should be, God, like, I want my heart to break for the things that break your heart. I want my heart, I want my life to, to hate sin. I want to be sick at the things that make you sick. I, I, I want to mourn and cry for the things that make you sad. Like, uh, even reading and studying in Malachi, like God addresses, like, man, like I'm, I'm having an issue with the way that you guys are worshiping because you're not bringing me your best. You're, you're keeping things back. You're, you're being sneaky even in your worship. And, and as I've meditated on that, I thought, God, I want our worship to be done in such a way that you are pleased with the worship that we were giving you. And if our concern is, God, I want, to, I want to love you. I want to know you. I want to be joyful for that which brings you joy. I want to be satisfied with that which satisfies your heart. Then the tendency will be to look less upon satisfying yourself and more about being fully satisfied with what glorifies God. And then he says, then love people. He says, take care of people. Look at their needs higher than yourself. When you see people in need, let that stir inside of you a response and an action. Let people drive how you live your life. Take the mirror away and begin to look through a different lens that sees people for who they are and their needs and how I've created you to have impact with them. The first commandment, love me and love people. The second thing we see, if you'll flip over to verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts of money, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. And calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you that this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. The second thing this morning is one who is marked and stamped with the image of God is known and seen by their generosity. And much like the commandments, when Jesus addressed the commandments, he is looking at the posture of the heart. And so we see here in this text that Jesus is sitting across from the temple from where the people would have come and put their tithes in. He's sitting across from the offering plate, if you will. And there's many people that are coming in and they're out of their wealth. They're putting in large sums and, and they may be making a show about it or, or they may be walking in and, and in pride putting down their large sum amounts of money. But then this widow who has nothing walks into the temple. And Jesus is watching her as she walks over to the treasury. And, and she has these two small little coins. And, and Scripture says that this is actually all that she had. It's everything that she had. But she found such delight in the kingdom of God that she put in everything that she had to live on. And we see here that the response of Jesus is recognition and delight in the gift of the giver. That it's not the amount that we give that God is most concerned with. It's not how much we can give to somebody. It's not who can write the biggest check and allowing pride to make us feel good that we're having a big impact. But God always is more concerned with the posture of the heart. 
He said it's recognizing that no matter how much or how little that you have been given, no matter how blessed you may feel or how blessed you may not feel, that God has given all of us the ability to engage in the kingdom through generosity. But he cares most about your heart. And we see that Jesus, he delights in the generous giver. He delights in the fact that this woman, she came and she said, I don't have much and and there's not a whole lot here that's going to probably make a dent in the needs of the temple. There's not a whole lot here that's going to pad the pockets of the priest. She says, but this is all that I have. This is everything that I have to live on. And yet her heart was so concerned with the kingdom of God and the things of Jesus that she delighted in generosity to give it to Jesus. And Jesus sees this and he delights in the giver. We see that in Second Corinthians 9, if you want to flip there briefly. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 6, we read that remember this, that whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. You see that Jesus, or God, he is not more uh, most concerned with the half-hearted, the reluctant, the, the, the guilt-filled gift and offering. Instead of giving to me, in a sense, like is done out of reluctancy and the heart is, is, is soiled when you give the gift, like keep it. Like honestly, God doesn't need your money. Like God created everything that we see, everything, the canvas in which the sky we're sitting under now, God created it. Right? So, I mean, transparently, like, God doesn't need your money. But what God does say and what we read in the scriptures is that the one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. The one who is cheap will reap a cheap reward. But yet the one who is generous, the one who says, man, I don't care how much I have or how much I feel like I don't have, the little bit or the lot of bit I have, my heart as one impressed with the seal of God is eager to engage in the kingdom through generosity. Yes, in the church, that's important, but what would it look like to live as a person of generosity in your restaurant, in your business, as a stay-at-home mom, as a plumber, as a lawyer? What would it look like if we are engaging people, if we are loving God, if we are loving people with the heart of eager generosity because we know that it brings delight to the heart of God? Again, like it takes the eyes off of us and it places the eyes back on loving God and loving people and it says, whatever I have, God, it's yours. And the reality of the matter is that whatever you have now is God's. Like he equipped you with the abilities, the giftings, the talents to even make the money that you have. Right, like the giftings that you have were given by God, how he chose to create you, the, the talents he's given you, if you're good with your hands, if you're an intellect, if whatever the case would be, those are giftings from God. And he says, like, I, I love my children. I want to bless them. And, and, and the scripture reads, like, we're all created differently. If we were all the same, if we all had the same function, we'd walk around as robots. We wouldn't get a whole lot accomplished. But God says, I have created you all uniquely. And in those giftings, he allows us to be 
provided for. And the invitation is, do we hoard those things? Do we look and say, this is for me, this is mine, I have got a tight fist around the things that I feel like I am owed? Or do we live in such a way that is open-handed to say, God, you've given me this in the first place? Scripture, will will we'll talk about that. A great starting place is 10%. Uh, it's a great place to start, uh, but from there, like you saying, like, Lord, if you want me to give more, if you want me to engage deeper, then it is yours. I heard it once said that the same posture that we have when we open our hands to release is the same posture that we have when we are opening our hands to receive. And there is something, there is blessing in Scripture that is tied to one who has a heart of generosity. Malachi will actually say that test God in this way. Test God and see if he will not pour back out a blessing over you. Whether that is financial, whether that is through health, whether that is through spiritual depth, that is not for me to say what the Lord may want to do with your blessing. But I can tell you from experience that when my wife and I, when Grace and I got married, we made uh, a covenant in a sense. It's like we, we will start from a place of generosity. We will start from a place of giving and tithing. And, and Lord, if you are calling us to increase that, if you are calling us to further that, then we will obey. And we have seen the Lord stretch us, and he has called us to deeper generosity. He's called us to more. And I can tell you standing here that the people who I've even... Uh, discipled with and, and talked to through this practice of generosity will come back and say, like, man, not only is it, one, impacting to people, not only does it show love for God and for people, but it blesses the heart of the giver as well. There is something that happens even for us as the giver that when we get to join in God's kingdom through giving, it blesses your heart. But yet God also says, like, see if I won't press down, shake up, and pour over a blessing back into your life, however that may be. But there is blessing that is tied to one who is eager to partake in God's kingdom through generosity. It is the mark of one who is engaged with the kingdom of God. Finally, we get to chapter 14. And we don't have time to read this passage, but if you read through Mark 14 and even in John 13, I want to paint this picture for you of what we see Jesus do. So Jesus has talked about give back to God what's God's. We are now in the final seven days of Jesus' life. This is happening in the last week of the life of Jesus. He says, man, like the greatest commandment of all the commandments that have been written in the Old Testament, of all the law, of all the prophets, everything is wrapped up into loving me and loving people. And you can show love for me and show love for people through your generosity. You can show love for me and love for people through repentance and through following me. But then we read here towards the end of the gospel, the night before Jesus was to be crucified. He is with his disciples. They are in the upper room, and they are having the famous Last Supper. And they sit down at the table, and they begin to eat. And then as they're beginning to recline, they recognize, or Jesus recognizes, that there is a certain task that has not been completed. starts to recognize that there is a certain nasty, dirty job that everybody else would have thought, that is not for me to do. And knowing this, Jesus gets up from his seat and he takes off his robe and he ties uh, something around his waist and he begins to walk up to his disciples and wash their feet. 
And for us in our culture, it can be maybe a little bit hard to understand the significance of this, but the feet washer, the servant who would wash the feet, was basically the lowest of the low of the servants. They were the nobodies. They had the no value. They were given the lowest position in that culture to wash feet. They didn't have shoes. They didn't have boots. They had sandals and straps and maybe no shoes whatsoever. They walked on dirt roads, they weren't paved, and the cows and the donkeys and the chickens and the dogs, like they were all walking the same ground. So the ground that the people would have walked was nasty. I mean, it was urinated on, there was probably feces on it, there was sweat, there was nasty mud, there was spoils of food, like the ground that these people walked was disgusting. So by the end of the day, their feet were nasty. And when they would come in to sit, and when they would come in to recline, there would be the servant who was least respected of them all that was given the task with wiping the crap off of people's feet. And so they're reclining, and Jesus recognized nobody has done the job of the feet washing, and so he gets up, and in the greatest show of sacrificial servanthood that his disciples would have seen, he begins to go one by one and wash these disciples' feet. And some of them will say, Jesus, this is not for you to do. You have no place to wash my feet. And Jesus would rebuke them because he was doing something that baffled his disciples. How could the Messiah, how could the one that we have seen with the power of God, how could we see the one who we believe is the Son of God, how can we see him lower himself to nothing and serve us through washing of our feet? It was a despicable job. And Jesus goes one by one, and he washes the disciples' feet. And when he gets done, he looks at them and he says, If you are my followers, if you serve me, you will be blessed if you do the same thing. He'll say, is a servant greater than the master? Is the messenger greater than the one who sent him? In essence, Jesus is saying, are you better than me? Like you've already recognized, as we were in Caesarea Philippi, and I said, who do people say that I am? Some Elijah, some John the Baptist, but the disciples said, no, we recognize you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. We recognize that the Creator, God, you are Him on earth to bring reconciliation of God and people. We know who you are. Jesus says, so are you better than me? Nobody else got up to do this job. Nobody else offered to serve in such a way is a servant greater than his master. And Jesus says that if you go and do as I have done, you will be blessed if you do this. And so as we read this, we, we, we ask the question, are we too good to lower ourselves and serve the same way Jesus did? Is there pride in who we are as children of God that says, I am too good for that job, right? Like there's people who are paid to do that. I would never dare do that test. That is not for me to do. You ask a little kid or you see uh, a student in the school say, hey, will you go pick up that trash? And a little kid would say, what? That's not my job, right? I didn't put that trash there. Who's going to clean it up? Mom will clean it up. No, I go pick up the trash, right? Like, we are called to lower ourselves and serve because Jesus says, are you too good to do that which you have seen me to do? If you will go over and flip over to James. James chapter 2. This is the half-brother of Jesus. 
James chapter 2 and verse 17, James says, Faith by itself, it is, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. James says, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Jesus says, you are blessed if you go and do these things. But then James will go a step further and he says, actually, I am, I am staking the claim that if you say you are a follower of Jesus, if you have faith in who Jesus is and you do not, if you are not moved into action through serving, then your faith is actually dead. This isn't a faith by works. Hear me say this. I'm not saying that your faith is accompanied by works. We recognize that because of the gospel, faith comes through believing and repenting. But what James does say is that if you are not moved to action, if the byproduct of our life by loving God and loving people is not to engage into what God is wanting to do on this earth through serving, then your faith is actually dead. Not that you haven't received it. There just might not be any life. It'd be like going to the kennel and adopting a dead dog and trying to play fetch with the dog and wondering why it won't fetch. doesn't mean you didn't adopt a dog. There's just no life in it. Right? And so James will look. He says, doesn't mean that you didn't adopt the faith. It doesn't mean that you might not believe in who Jesus is, but if you are not engaging into the kingdom of God, if you are not engaging by loving me and loving people through serving, then there's no life here. And again, we go back and Jesus says, if you are willing to lower yourself, you will be blessed. That there should be a response from us as followers of Jesus that are eager and excited to engage into the kingdom through serving. It is what our Savior did. It is, it is a part of who he is. And I want, to be, uh, I want to take these three and I want us to meditate on them because we are created in the image of God. Each one of us. This is not an accident that you are here. This is no coincidence that God has created you. He has created you for a special purpose. He has put a unique calling on your life and we inhabit the characteristics of who Jesus is. And through repentance and through following again, that seal is impressed on our lives as if a king was putting his ring seal on a letter that would be sent out for a purpose. So we have been sealed to then be sent out. And God says there are commandments. There are religious uh, things that people want to say, well, you've got to do this and you have to act this way and you shouldn't do these things. And Jesus says, if your deepest concern is loving me, if your deepest concern is to worship me, if your deepest concern is loving people, there will be a natural response that glorifies God. Be generous in what God has given you. You cannot outgive God. And then be willing to serve. If the worship band wants to head up, Again, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 40, Jesus says that the entire law and all the prophets are based on these commandments, to love God and to love people. So what would it look like, yes, to engage uh, the church through generosity and through serving, but what would it look like to engage your place of work? As a third grade teacher in your classroom, what would it look like to, to step into the kingdom of God in these ways? 
as I said already, as a plumber, as a restaurant owner, as a businessman or woman? What would it look like as a stay-at-home mom to engage in the kingdom of God in this manner? That we have all been uniquely placed in life. We have all been uniquely placed somewhere that God has given us the ability to partner with the kingdom in these things. And it should be the natural response of who we are. We're going to move into a time of, of prayer and, and worship and communion now. And a couple of things. We'll have communion set up somewhere in the corners. Somewhere in the corner. Back here in the corners. Okay, up against by the stairs. I would, I would invite you guys, man, to take communion with your family. Jesus says that as often as you meet, whenever you engage together in worship, as we talked about on the front end, that, that there was this sacrifice that only Jesus could have done that then brings us uh, intimately reunited with the Father. So when we take communion, we take the bread, and, and we take of the wine or the juice, and we remember the sacrifice that God made for us. And it is a form of worship that we get to engage in when we remember communion. And then we're going to have our prayer team. We have an unbelievable prayer team that has been established uh, over the last months. And we have people that want to engage with you in gray lanyards to pray for you, to intercede on your behalf. As Brian has said, it's not so much a matter of who needs prayer, but what do you need prayer for? And are you willing to step out and to say, man, I just, I just need somebody to pray with me? If you have never decided to follow Jesus, I would invite you, man, find one of these people. Find one of the pastors on staff. Let this be the day that for the first time ever I choose to repent. I choose to turn away from the desires of the flesh and say, God, I want to be most concerned with loving you and loving people. I want to step into what that really looks like for the first time today. And again, those of you who are walking with the Lord, please go partake in communion. Let that be a worshipful time as we spend in worship now. So if you'll pray with me. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for these truths. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you give so many opportunities for us to engage your kingdom, uh, whether it's through giving or whether it's through sacrificially serving or whether it's through loving people. So I pray now as we step into worship that we would give you all that we have in worship. God, if we don't cry out, if we don't praise your names, the rocks and the trees will. And so may worship not be brought to you just through your creation, but by your people who were created in your image. Would we honor you in worship? In Jesus' name.